News Nation. On tonight's show, a trial date is set in the Trump classified documents case, and it comes smack in the middle of an election year. What does it mean for Trump's chances to regain the presidency? And back at the White House, Biden meets big tech with top executives looking on. President Biden announcing a voluntary pledge from companies like Meta and Amazon to reduce the risks of artificial intelligence. But is it all too little and too late? And down the street on Capitol Hill, hot pink is having a moment. Lawmakers get their Barbenheimer bandwagon. They get on that bandwagon ahead of the summer's most anticipated double feature. And we will pay tribute to a musical icon. I left my home in San Francisco. Uh, truly one of the greatest. And later we remember the legendary Tony Bennett, a crooner loved across American generations. We have a great panel joining us today. Bill McGinley, former tri- Trump White House cabinet secretary and principal at the Vogel Group. Scott Bolden, D.C. Democratic Party chairman and legal analyst, and Bob Cusack, editor-in-chief, not to say commander-in-chief, of the Hill publication. (laughs) Okay, former President Trump now has a date for the start of his trial over alleged mishandling of classified documents. And that date, May 20th, 2024, yeah, in the middle of an election year. It's a compromise of sorts. The Justice Department wanted the trial to start in December of this year, while Trump's legal team pushed for a trial after the 2024 election. Okay. Bob, let's start with you. What do we make of this? I mean, the, the president has a lot of legal days coming up, but this is perhaps the biggest one. That's right, and that's going to be right before the convention. So obviously, Trump is the favorite to win. I mean, I mean, listen, this, there's, we've never seen an election like this, especially when you bring in these trials. And remember, a third indictment's happening next week, and that's one that I think Trump, and we have some polling data that we're going to be reporting yeah. on, has to worry about. That's right, and it's after, it's before the conventions. But it's after many of the primaries, you guys, and it appears as though, usually is the case, the nominee will be decided by the time this trial starts, Bill. Yeah, and I think one of the things to remember is that in 2016, when it was Cruz v. Trump, May was a decisive month to determine who was going to go into the convention oh, that's right. yeah. with the most delegates uh, bound to them. So I think this trial date comes at what could be a critical time if we end up in a long slog primary on the Republican side. All right, and Scott, before we get to you, I want to go through this legal calendar here because May, 24, May 20th is not the only, 2024 is not the only date. We've got the October 2nd coming up. Uh, the Trump Organization, a civil fraud trial, January 15th of next year. The E. Jean Carroll civil defamation trial, if I'm not mistaken, that's the same day as the Iowa caucuses, January 15th. January 29th, the Trump pyramid scheme, so-called class action trial. Uh, March 25th, a hush money criminal trial, May 20th, a classified documents criminal trial, and then we've got grand juries heading a meeting down the street at the federal court here, and the Georgia grand jury on on, uh, interference and election interference. So a lot on the docket, so to speak. Well, Donald Trump's going to be busy with the criminal (laughs) justice system, and he's running for president. He's going to have to pick one over the other. Of all of these dates, the civil trials don't really matter, won't affect him, because the civil trials, he doesn't have to appear. Watch that March 25th date. That judge in New York at the state court Mm. level's got the power to push, and he's going to push and try to get this out of the way, because if he doesn't do that, then he's going to be bumping up into the May 20th trial date, I think the federal judge, despite Trump's appointment of her, she's going to make that 
date stick. It wasn't really a compromise. No one, criminal justice system doesn't care about the presidential race. They care about the business in front of them. And so if he gets indicted a third time and a fourth time, watch two things. One, all these lawyers are representing Trump, and if they bump into each other, they may have to get different counsel yeah. because mm-hmm. the courts don't really care about that. And secondly, uh, when do these two indictments, when does he have to appear in court and so forth and so on? It's going to get really jumbled on the criminal justice system. And then there's the campaign. Bill, is it actually fair for the Republican voters to have to wait to hear any of these trials? I know that the Trump administration, the Trump attorneys are pushing to push it back because they say preparation. But what's fair to the Republican primary voters? Well, the thing about Trump is that there's nothing really to hide. I mean, everything that happens with him seems to spill out on the front pages of all the newspapers. So it's not like the voters are being denied information. For example, we haven't heard one thing about the Biden classified document investigation, where almost every day we've heard something about Trump. We're going to hear about it a little bit later, Bill. Don't worry about I'm looking forward to that. But I think the other thing to remember is that, you know, there's a long DOJ policy that you don't bring things that interfere with elections. Yes. And what yeah. a lot of people... Um, don't understand is that under the FEC rules, the national convention yep. is the primary election. So we've scheduled a trial that could bump right up against yeah. that 60 days. Yeah. Now, and so does that weigh in? There's other political news. Uh, Ron DeSantis is in Utah tonight where he's going to receive the endorsements of more than a dozen state legislatures. Legislators and that those endorsements are welcome news for the struggling campaign. News Nation has confirmed the DeSantis campaign is shifting strategy, doing more small events as he tries to regain momentum and close the gap against Trump. There's a memo to supporters that reads, our path to the nomination will now require running an underdog and DC outsider campaign. We will now get back to basics and focus on the early nominating states. So I know we were just talking about Trump, Bill, but DeSantis, he says now he's going to start running an underdog campaign. (laughs) Wasn't he already running an underdog campaign? I think it's where they should have started from the beginning. I mean, Mm. running an outsider campaign, but also talking um, to voters as being an insurgent, I think would have been his natural fit given the policies pursued uh, in Florida. Doing the smaller gatherings uh, for events as opposed to trying to compete with Trump on the large gatherings, I don't think has really worked. There's a lot of time to go. Um, And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are looking at is the DeSantis campaign more like Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, or is it more like John McCain, where they can successfully retool, he can recalibrate his message, reconnect with the voters, and actually go on. And he could come off the pace. I mean, four years ago, we were talking about Elizabeth Warren as the certain nominee of the Democratic Party, right? But, I mean, Bob, DeSantis is not known for the so-called retail politics that is so treasured and so key winning an Iowa caucus, you know, traveling to all 99 counties as a lot of the candidates do. Right. Listen, he's got some major problems. I mean, his launch was terrible. He's been stuck (laughs) or his numbers are going down. Vivek Ramaswamy is basically in the rearview mirror and closing in very fast. So and he's I think he's in real danger of losing donors to the point where if he doesn't have a good debate, if he doesn't have a good summer, he's in real trouble. And is he another Jeb Bush? Is he another Scott Walker? Mm. He hasn't had one great moment on the campaign. Yeah. Or a great day for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier, though. His latest uh, effort against so-called woke culture, something that he's been running on, something that he considers to be one of his strongest things. He's going after InBev, which incidentally is not an American company. It's an international conglomerate. 
uh, because the investments made by the state funds for state retired state employees in Florida were invested in InBev, and because of the whole controversy about the endorsement from the trans uh, personality, I can't remember uh, her name. Mulvaney. Right Thank you. Yeah. Dylan, Dylan yeah. Mulvaney. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, have a, we have some sound from Ron DeSantis, right? Yeah. All right. Let's hear that. Yeah. I know... We're going to be launching an inquiry uh, about Bud Light and InBev, and it could be something that leads to a derivative lawsuit uh, filed on behalf of the shareholders of the Florida uh, Pension Fund, because at the end of the day, there's got to be penalties for when you put business aside to focus on your social agenda. Okay, you guys are lawyers. That seems like a three-cushion bank shot, right? I mean, he's going to sue them because they invested in InBev and they lost money in the state fund. But why? Yes, he can do all of that as a derivative lawsuit. That takes time, money, and resources. But why is he talking about a lawsuit if he wants to be the GOP nominee? It feels like he's flailing in the wind, and so now they're going to try the outsider underdog thing. Oh, I'm going to bring another lawsuit because I'm against this, quote, woke culture. If you want to be president, run for president, focus on it, and make it your top priority. And I don't get a sense this campaign is making it happen like that or and, thinking but, along those lines. Yeah. And he should also be talking more about the economy and maybe a bigger tax yes. cut than Trump. Give us something, you know, inflation. You know, these type of issues, inflation and the economy are the top issues. He's not talking about that as oh, much. And as border should. states are delegate-rich states. He mm. should be down oh, yeah. pushing immigration right. reform as well and building the wall and stopping I mean, he's trying to own wall. the woke issue. Well, so right. far, it's not Republic really working for Republicans it. are also telling me that they don't want him going after private businesses. It's very dangerous. Yeah, it seems a little bit contradictory yeah. to the whole free enterprise thing. <laughs> okay, so now, now turning to President Biden's re-election campaign, new reports show that Biden is running an unusually, let's call it, lean political operation. That's for an incumbent president. News Nation's chief Washington correspondent, Blake Berman, standing by on the North Lawn on Pebble Beach. He's live. He's going to break it all down for us. Blake, uh, what does all this tell us about the president's approach to running? And is he really all in on this campaign? All right. So let's break this down a couple different ways, Vic. First off, the staff. Here's what I'm told. Uh, As recently as the recent weeks, it was incredibly small at around a handful Now I'm told that the staff on the president's campaign side of things is up to approximately about a dozen. Keep in mind, this is the president of the United States running for re-election. He's 87 days into this thing now, and the staff is only at around a dozen. Still very, very lean at this point. The president, though, is getting out on the campaign trail, traveling largely to swing states. For example, Pennsylvania yesterday, as you see there, his running mate, of course, the vice president, Kamala Harris. Today, she was actually in the swing state of Florida for an official White House event. However, as the Wall Street Journal recently noted, she's only been to three swing states leading up to today. Keep in mind, though, that the president does have the bully pulpit, the backing of the DNC, along with several super PACs supporting his campaign. Democrats uh, like Rodell Mullineau, who is advising the super PAC Unite the Country, aren't necessarily concerned about that small campaign staff size. Watch. It's a long time between now and the general election. I think starting lean allows them to save some money and save it for when they really need it. Uh, they have the White House right now. You know, um, being, you know, some people are saying, well, they might be too lean. Yeah, you know, I look at it as being efficient with the resources. All right. So, so Vic, that's the, the campaign staff side of things. Here's what News Nation is also told separately. As it relates to the deepest pockets within the the Democratic Party, the mega donors, 
that there is a concern about his viability because he is not giving them, the mega donors, the deepest pockets, the indications that he wants it, President Biden, as bad as they would hope that he wants it. The silence, as it's put, is becoming a bit deafening, and it's most deafening as it relates to the vice president, Kamala Harris. There's increasing concern, Vic, we are told, uh, that even though President Biden, among the mega donors, some of them, even though he's got the money, $72 million raised last quarter, $77 million cash on hand, and even though that he has the better message, as they believe it, there is this concern that President Biden in the general could potentially lose. And among that concern, Vic, is again, these donors are hearing that, that they're concerned at least that the president might not want it as badly as they would hope that he wants it at oh. this stage in the game, Vic. Wow, Blake. I mean, that's, uh, that's startling information, a crack in the facade of the president's support, as small though it may be. Uh, that, that's, that's fascinating as we move uh, into the summer as the campaign gets started in earnest. Blake Berman, thank you very much. Okay, so as President Biden focuses on his reelection campaign, the Republican-led investigation of his son, Hunter Biden, presses on. Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley releasing a semi-redacted FBI document with unverified allegations about Hunter Biden and his connection to Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company. And joining us now to discuss all of this is Emily Brooks. She is a congressional reporter for the Hill. Emily, uh, this document, this document is the one the FBI tried to keep away from Congress initially. They allowed some Congress people to look at it, some committee members to look at it, but now uh, they, they were trying to keep it out of the public eye. Now it's in the public eye. So what does it say? Well, this document is a conversation between the F an FBI agent and a confidential human source. And this source was talking to the CEO of that Ukrainian energy company, Burisma, and making some claims about the reasons why Hunter Biden was on the board, the CEO's hopes that perhaps it would influence then-Vice President Biden to somehow intervene with the company's legal troubles and some payments made. But now, this document even says that the source cannot verify whether the things that he was hearing from this Burisma CEO were true. So that's important to note. And the FBI very sharply criticized the release of this document by congressional Republicans. You know, usually we get a no comment from the FBI when right. something happens with the agency, but they release a very sharply uh, worded statement saying that this endangers the confidentiality of their very important source and Democrats in the White House have of course, sharply criticize this as well, but it will be very important to the Republicans as they continue their investigation of the Hunter Biden and the Biden family's business dealings. Okay, Emily Brooks, thank you very much. I'm here with your boss. He approves. <laughs> All right. Good, good reporting, seriously. Okay, let's bring in the panel. Uh, Bill, this ground has been plowed before. I mean, I seem to remember an entire impeachment trial about this. Are, are, the Repub are Republicans making headway here? Are they presenting new evidence? Yeah, I think what they are doing is actually starting to put out the primary documents that underlie the allegations okay. uh, that were there. This uh, Form 1023 that Senator Grassley released yesterday, right. coupled with the hearing from the two IRS whistleblowers uh, that was quite compelling, where they actually named additional individuals who could corroborate what was happening in that, plus the documentation, I think really does begin to build some questions that really need to be answered. And I think Republicans in the House are going to vigorously go after those questions 
questions to try and get the answers for the American people. But the important question is the uh, Hunter Biden court hearing that's coming up where the judge is either going to accept or reject uh-huh. the plea deal and whether it's going to have any impact on that. All right. So, this, I mean, why, why is the FBI dragging his feet on releasing this thing to begin with? Well, because you have confidential sources, you have an investigation, you want to protect your sources, and it's just inappropriate for FBI information and documents like this that is hearsay and uncorroborated to put it out into the public. In fact, they they asked the Senate uh, uh, senators not to release it. I think they had an agreement. If they didn't, they certainly should have had an agreement, and they violated this agreement. And they threatened to hold the FBI director in contempt or to try to impeach him, maybe, if if he didn't come forward. Now he comes forward, and look at what the Republicans do. So these are all more questions. There are no answers Mm. here. This thing has been investigated ad nauseum. Bob, I've got to ask, though. You know, it seems like there's there's always been kind of this allegations. We know Hunter Biden has done terrible, terrible things. Um, The trying of connecting it to the president, it still feels like, you know, the IRS whistleblowers didn't necessarily do that. Do we have anything from this latest that connects it with President Biden? Well, Republicans have looked into Burisma for a long time. Do I think that 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 President Biden has been completely 100% truthful of what he knew about Hunter's deals? No, I don't think so. But I don't think there's been a smoking gun in that case. I think the IRS whistleblowers is more of a concern. We don't have all the answers there, but I think Gary Shapley has came across as a very credible witness, and I do think their allegations do have some merit. Um, but there's a drip, drip, drip here, right? I mean, Republicans are going after Biden in a number of areas. Some things are sticking. Some things, I think, are not. But they've also got to be focused on the House vulnerables, Republicans who just got elected, because otherwise they're going to lose them unless they start talking more about the bread and butter issues like the economy. It's absolutely awful tax abuses and fraud. Absolutely. But aren't there tons of Americans who are accused of the same and don't get prosecuted at the level and get the attention that the president's son is getting? Is it? a risk for Republicans, Bill? I think from the Republicans' perspective, especially the primary voters, they're going to say that everybody does it. defense is not going to wash with Hunter Biden and the president. In the same time, when they see how President Trump's being treated for every little thing that maybe people don't like, they think it's improper, but to criminally charge him, uh, a lot of people, even mainstream Republicans, think that's a step too far. Wow. So the, the, the standard that you set for one needs to be applied to the other, and this has been the Republican complaint all along, is that we need to have equal justice under law in addition to the rule of law. That is a primary component of it. And until we get that faith restored in the system, I think this is going to continue to be a very big issue. We shall see. Trump's been indicted on some pretty big things. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot of evidence on all sorts of things. We shall see. (laughs) Coming up, the war in Ukraine. The U.S. is sending money and weapons, but the support goes much further. As Americans are signing up to fight in Ukraine, with some of them giving their lives, we'll talk to a veteran who experienced the war firsthand. Plus, a safety pledge on artificial intelligence. The top companies who are leading the AI wave agree to self-regulate. But does it go far enough? We'll discuss. The Grain Initiative. That deal allowing Ukraine to export grain despite a Russian blockade of that waterway. Meanwhile, U.S. support for Ukraine is not limited to Congress and the Biden administration delivering weapons. Some Americans are suiting up to fight in this war. And not all of them made it back home. With us to discuss his own experience on the, on the ground fighting for Ukraine is U.S. Army veteran Carl Larson. Uh, Carl, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, I mean, just right from the top, 
Why would you, an American veteran, go fight and potentially lose your life to fight on behalf of Ukraine? So first of all, thank you for having me today, Mike. Um, I'm happy to answer that question. Uh, even though I'm back home safe in Seattle, I'm still very much a passionate defender of the uh, Ukrainian cause. And I feel that my going over there to put my personal safety at risk was the best way that I could show international support for the Ukrainian cause and uh, provide uh, what um, personal uh, direct help that I could at that time to uh, ensure their, uh, the survival and safety of their, their country and their democracy. Uh, listen, now, the fighting uh, on the ground, it looks, you know, it's brutal. It's primitive. It looks like World War I trench warfare. Uh, at this point, would you encourage other Mer Americans to follow in your footsteps and go over there and fight? <laughs> no, I would not. Um, you would not? It was, it was a pretty brutal and horrendous experience. I came close to death several times. I did have some members of my platoon, unfortunately, were KIA, some of them right next to me. Uh, I think that Americans have a role to play in this conflict, but it's a support role. I, the Ukrainian military needs, they really don't need more uh, soldiers. They've got plenty of strong, brave men and women over there uh, ready and willing to defend their country. Really what they need is vastly larger quantities of equipment, especially equipment that has not been provided by the U.S. government and NATO, things like drones, night vision, generators, vehicles, any American who wants to help Ukraine can get involved fundraising, influ getting involved on social media, spreading the word, giving presentations, and can adopt a, uh, a, uh, a unit or even just one uh, Ukrainian soldier and supply their unit. Because uh, let me tell you, while I was over there, I saw Ukrainian soldiers in the snow wearing tennis shoes. I saw them Carl. holding their belongings. Yes. Yeah, you know, I, it's just so amazing. It's Johanna Masca. I've, I've seen, you know, the things that you saw firsthand. You've talked to some of the local press about. But um, what's amazing is a lot of the debates at the national level are about big munitions. And you're saying the things that people lack is the ability to charge a radio and the ability yeah. to have, a, you know, something that they need life-saving equipment right then. What are the gaps? Shouldn't the Ukrainian government then be asking the U.S. government for those things? What are the gaps in communications that you saw on the ground? You know, this, the question that you ask is uh, very similar to the question that uh, Representative Adam Smith asked us this morning when uh, my group and, and a few other pro-Ukraine groups met with him in his office here in Seattle. Uh, the fact is that the U.S. government provides what it has and, uh, for example, can't go out and buy tens of thousands of D cheap DJI drones. DJI refuses to sell them to, uh, to Ukraine or to Russia, and so uh, it's left to private individuals and small groups like mine to do that. And the U.S. government is providing lots of very expensive weapon systems, HIMARS, uh, Bradley's, um, Abrams have been promised, uh, but they're not providing the huge numbers of cheap equipment, like $2,000 night vision. The, the, my Legion brothers that I talk to almost every day, they're screaming for night vision. 90% mm -hmm. of the war is happening, uh, the assaults are happening at night now, and if they're having to pick their way through minefields without night vision. Uh, they're getting shot at, and they just have to shoot towards the, the, uh, where they see the flashes. So $2,000 night vision by the 
hundreds by the tens of thousands at least is really what's needed not uh in addition to these expensive wow. weapon systems that our government is providing yeah carl larson thank you so much for joining us i think it's so interesting to have your perspective bob what is this gap i mean we're getting all of these questions about big purchases and he's saying the gap is a two thousand dollar night vision purchase, you know, night vision goggle purchase. What's the gap there? Uh, And is Congress addressing it? Very interesting interview and and harrowing stories. Obviously lost (laughs) some of his colleagues. You know, listen, I I think on the Ukraine aid, there are two good arguments. One, because of the threat of Russia, we should be there. On the other hand, we're $32 trillion in debt. Mm -hmm. And we, as a country, are paying more than any other of the allies of Ukraine. So listen, I I think this is something right now, uh, uh, the support is there for this aid. But where are we going to be in a year? Where are we going to be as we approach the fall of 2024? It could flip. And, you know, I mean, we've been talking about this a lot. There's eroding support within the Republican Party, but still the leadership is, by and large, in Congress, uh, supportive McConnell and and McCarthy are still somewhat supportive of more aid. But there's a growing split. Uh, There's a growing number of people who echo the calls we hear from conservative media that say it's Russian territory. They want to take it back. Does that resonate, Bill? with Republican voters, is that something that is going to be an issue as, as we go forward in the campaign? I mean, we've given, the United States has given $40 billion right. in arms so far. Right. And the one question I wanted to ask Carl was, what has he seen on the ground from the other NATO members supplying to yeah. Ukraine, right? Uh, because, you know, NATO is the one that's actually supporting. The U.S. has done the lion's share of the support right. um, on that. And so what is what have our other uh, NATO members done as well? But from the American first crowd, the people that I talk to, you know, we're sending all that money over, but we don't secure the, the southern border. We have the train derailment in East Palestine, and the federal government's been slow to do that, but we're sending everything over to Ukraine. So there's a certain element, especially within the House Republicans, that are saying, you know, why don't we take care of our own before we take care of somebody else? I think that there's a lot of people who specialize in foreign policy and understand what happens in Ukraine impacts our relationship with China and other potential adversaries across the globe, that everybody's watching what the U.S. is going to do, and we need to navigate this very carefully to, to stop this but also not to escalate it. Now, he lost, uh, he was near someone who lost their lives who was a German soldier who was right. also fighting. So I do know that NATO is stepping up. But, Scott, how long can the Democrats continue to spend and spend? And do, <clears throat> when we hear this, are we spending on the wrong things? I don't think we're spending on the wrong things from what I'm hearing. But I will say this. What's bothersome about the night vision piece that he raised yeah. is that you don't need any training for night vision. It's only $2,000. If they need those by the tens of thousands, you would think that would be easy, quick fix, and the NATO members or the U.S. could do that like that, and just from a process and a shipping standpoint. So uh, that's disappointing. Right. That's so we're on. shipping them F-16s. We've got them M.O. Abrams tanks, Bradley fighting vehicles, Patriot missiles, HIMAR artillery. Yeah. But, though but you they need generators. Trained on that. <laughs> they, yeah. Yeah, they need generators uh, to run. Generators. All right. Leave that one there. Okay. Coming up. It's the risk of artificial intelligence as the debate grows over regulation. The White House says it has new commitments from big tech. But will it work? These commitments are real and they're concrete. They're going to help fulfill industry fulfill its fundamental obligation to Americans to develop safe, secure, and trustworthy technologies that benefit society and uphold our values and our shared values. 
That was President Biden a short time ago, announcing seven of the leading tech companies in artificial intelligence agreed to voluntary safeguards on the development of AI. The safeguards include ensuring products are safe before introducing them to the public, building systems that put security first, and earning the public's trust. Joining us now is Anne Neuberger, White House Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies. She's leading the administration's efforts on these issues. Thank you, Anne, so much for joining us on a Friday night. I have to ask, you've been in the public sector for a long time, really getting into the vulnerabilities of artificial intelligence. Tonight, it was a private sector agreement to basically regulate themselves, right? Is this enough? It's good to be with you today. This harkens back, tonight's agreement is, harkens back to the president convening the big AI companies back in May to call on them to take first critical steps to put in place security and safeguards to take steps towards responsible and safe AI. It is a first critical step, but it is certainly just that first step. It's a bridge to what comes next, which is the White House is working on an executive order. President Biden has pressed to have that happen very quickly. President Biden knows that technology is moving very, very quickly. So this first step was the private sector is taking voluntary commitments. You'll see executive action to ensure that we're using all the power of government to press for safe and responsible AI. And then finally, as you know, Leader Schumer has convened on the Hill and is really moving to a more regulatory approach that we'll see from Congress. The president yeah. knows that it'll take some time for Congress to do that work. So this is the first step towards that. <laughs> the president's certainly familiar with Congress taking its time, but the executive order, what are you allowed to do through executive order and what do you need Congress to act on? That's exactly what the White House is focused on right now. Looking at, for example, how we can promote use of AI to ensure that we're using it in government to ensure government services are available in the best possible way. For example, potentially answering questions about key government services. How to ensure that um, we are thinking through the careful steps that have to be in place before, for example, AI could be rolled out across critical infrastructure. How to think about how to protect consumers, ensuring that we can really put in place protections against bias so Americans can earn trust in the technology. Those are the things we're thinking about. But the commitment is that when that EO comes out, it reflects everything the government can do in its current powers. And then finally, until Congress passes some new laws, which that effort is truly underway. Hmm. So uh, I, I know today uh, that it was, again, private sector uh, invitations to the White House. But is the Biden administration inviting congressional Republicans to the White House to talk to them about this? The White House's work is committed to working with the Hill. I think you see Speaker Schumer has been doing bipartisan convenings, both bringing in individuals from across the tech sector, bringing in individuals who are leading AI researchers, academia, to educate the Hill, to ensure that issues like this truly are bipartisan. I think very much we hear that Americans are concerned that the risk of AI to American safety, that's very much a bipartisan issue. Yeah. And I know as we think about the promise of AI, the promise to our economy, the need for training for 
potential um, areas of employment that may be affected by AI. Those are bipartisan issues, and that's the way <laughs> the White House is committed to working with the Hill, and I think that's the way you see Speaker Schumer's effort already having kicked off. Well, we will keep following this story, Anne. I know all of us with children have a lot of questions about this, both for their own security and for our future of jobs. So we'll uh, look forward to having you back. Um, Bob, I have to ask, uh, on this topic, you know, I didn't hear her say that they've already invited congressional Republicans to the White House. What's, you know, what's the misstep there? Because we know the action is going to take a long time. Right. And it's always, when you talk about regulation, there's going to be some partisanship. There's no doubt about it. But government agencies sometimes take years, and then it's, these regulations are challenged in court. And can government keep up with Mm. AI? So, listen, I think this is a good first step. Uh, As she said, Senator Schumer is looking at this, but do I, I I think members are going to go cautious on this because, honestly, they're trying to just figure it out like the rest of us. Yeah. I do wonder, I do wonder though, whether the congressional Republicans would even show up if they were invited. Do you think they would? I do think they would. Hmm. And I know that on the House Armed Services Committee, they actually had a meet, uh, hearing uh, that was bipartisan uh, regarding the Defense Department and AI and what they should be doing in that respect. So House Republicans are interested in this. I think one of the things, the tension here is you really need to put the guardrails up to make sure that there's human control both in the information that's put into the AI, but also how do you manage uh, what it actually does. But more importantly, and equally importantly, I should say, we need to make sure that the U.S. doesn't lose an advantage and that we cede the ground to others like China or Russia or others that are also trying to play in this space. So there's a lot of tension there between regulation and making sure that the United States is the leader uh, in this technology. It is absolutely the case. Coming up, we'll talk about a different type of campaign. The U.S. women's national soccer team is headed to the World Cup. They've already won four titles, more than any other country, and now they're looking to win another. The excitement of our U.S. team on the world stage, that's next. And here's a uh, here's a look at what's coming up tonight on On Balance. Starting at 7 p.m. Tonight on News Nation, toxic chemicals have crippled her community. And now she's publicly asking President Biden for help in a News Nation exclusive. East Palestine resident Jessica Conard joins Leland to discuss why the administration needs to act fast. Plus two words, cocaine, sharks. Are sharks feasting on cocaine being dumped into the ocean by drug smugglers? What investigators are uncovering deep below the surface. Tonight on On Balance. Welcome back, everyone. It's been more than a week since the Secret Service closed its investigation into that bag of cocaine found in the White House West Wing earlier this month. But the probe came to an end with no answers. Still questions about why this case was even closed to begin with. And joining us now to discuss it is Elizabeth Vargas. Elizabeth? Hey, there have been a lot of people wondering, you know, this is the White House, probably the most secure building in our nation, where the Situation Room is, where the president lives and works. And many people are questioning why the Secret Service cannot figure out who uh, left a little tiny bag of cocaine in one of the entrances. Tonight, we'll talk with a former Secret Service agent who knows that White House like the back of her hand. She was assigned there. She worked there. She knows where the cameras are, and she knows what the procedures are. So we'll get the very latest from her on the questions that still swirl about this discovery and why the case is now closed. Wow. 
Thanks, Elizabeth. You can watch Elizabeth Vargas reports right after The Hill at 6 p.m. Eastern. Turning now to a major moment for America on the globe state, global stage, the 2023 FIFA World Cup is currently underway in Australia and New Zealand. And the U.S. women's soccer team is set to face off against Vietnam in their first match tonight. Team USA is seeking a record fifth World Cup win. News Nation's Robert Sherman is live in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is home to two of the members on the U.S. women's team. Robert, how is the buzz in Ohio? Yeah, everywhere you go, Joanna, you walk around and people are talking about the game a bit, saying just how much the sport has grown in this area. Yes, this is one of America's premier sports town. And of course, you always think about baseball and football, but people are quick to correct you here that soccer is really on the up and up in this community. So it is no surprise that two of the 23 women who are representing the U.S. in the World Cup Hail from right here in the Queen City. One is Rose Lavelle, a star midfielder for the team, and the other a goalkeeper, Aubrey Kingsbury, who is making her World Cup debut later tonight. We spoke with her mom a short while ago, and as you can imagine, Johanna, she is one very proud mom. It's been a long nine years of just grinding it out and not giving up and moving forward and coming back. But now this is, this is the big stage and just thinking, wow, this is her dream come true. And here it is. And if you watch the last World Cup in 2019, Rose Lavelle scored that big goal that put the U.S. up 2-0 over the Netherlands in the final, which ended up icing it for the United States. She has become a big star here in the Cincinnati community as well. And you talk about the game of soccer here with folks. They say, you know, that they really feel as though that this is becoming one of the premier soccer towns here in the United States. They intend to come out and show support for their ladies this evening. A lot of watch parties happening here in downtown Cincinnati should be a fun night. Joanna? This is, this is so exciting. Robert, thank you so much for that reporting. I've got to say, Mike, you know, the women have won a lot. They have. <laughs> a little bit more than our men have. Yeah, that's true. And, well, and it's another thing that, you know, soccer has around the world really shaped the world. And I've always, always thought, you know, we talk about women's equality all the time. We talk about it in Afghanistan and other places. Uh-huh. Shouldn't we be leading the efforts yeah, the with pay soccer? Equity, pay and, equity in women's yes, professional soccer, yes, football, if you like, yes. um, is still an issue that really has has to be tackled. Yeah. Um, and we've had a lot of problems in the, in the major American soccer league for women here in the United States as well over the course of the last uh, couple of years over this issue and some other issues. But the thing about this is, I mean, I think there's more interest in the women's team, because they are so successful here in the United States as we kick off tonight, right? Yeah. Uh, the first game uh, that they're going to be playing. There's more interest in the women's team than in the men's team, which hasn't met that kind of success. Plus, you have these kind of compelling stories. Three moms on yeah. our women's national team. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really, it's really kind of stirring. It's really kind of inspiring when you see all that. And the youngest American player is just 18 years old. 18 years old. And evidently, there's like some debates on uh, what music you actually are going to listen really? to. Yes, uh, you know, like I, I, as a Tony mom Bennett? of an 11-year-old, yeah. the, the music <laughs> interests of different generations are a little different. Yeah. But uh, coming up, it is the biggest question in the country and in Washington. Which movie are you going to see this weekend, or both, Barbie or Oppenheimer? The panel will weigh in. 
Be sure also to follow us on social media by following, liking, and subscribing to our social feeds. We go behind the scenes, and sometimes we even show our families. Right now, you can actually join my son, who is that younger uh, <laughs> generation, who joined me this weekend in D.C. He took some time to sketch the Capitol Dome. You can see him right there. So check that out. You can see the whole sketch there, my little artist. Uh, we will be right back. Welcome back. The highly anticipated blockbusters, Barbie and Oppenheimer, are out today. And the contrast between these two releases is pretty stark. One is a story based on an American icon in children's toys. The other, a film about a key player in the creation of the nuclear bomb. Some on the Internet are saying they will watch both movies back-to-back, -back, a double feature they're calling... Barbenheimer, that oh, seems am, like a little am, jarring to me. Uh, All am, the lawmakers are also <laughs> joining in on the fun, posting on social media. Uh, so to the panel, uh, to Barbenheimer, oh, you're I, dying to get Barbie. in on this. I'm Team Barbie. I'm Team Barbie, but I'm sorry, the Ben Cardin thing where oh, he's Senator like, ben Cardin, you know, he, yes, he's got this yeah. big thing and he says, you know, this is your American Barbie, and he's got himself. <laughs> and I thought he was Ken. No, Scott, what? Yeah. He was Ken's grandfather. <laughs> No, actually, yeah. I think yeah. they came out, you know, in the mid-century. So. Okay, <laughs> it just seems like such a jarring conflict. Well, look I mean, at this Barbie. one. Oh, yes, we got Betterman. Betterman is also yeah. a Barbie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for the record, I'm wearing a pink tie here in honor of the, You're a Barbie the bar Barbie meal. I, I, I could pass for Ken. You know, I, I mean, it's just like a sock. It's just like a, but I mean, one is a serious thing about nuclear yeah, but, weapons and the other is about, well, yeah, Barbie. What I think is really driving this kind of energy behind this has to do with the fact that you had the actors and the writers strike, uh. and we don't know when we're going to get new material, and this is new material. Mm. Yeah, well, at least we're talking about going back to the movie theaters. Which yes. I've only seen one since the pandemic, Avatar 2, which is okay. I was really? Only just one? Thinking only the same I only thing. have yeah. one, too. Oh, I've seen tons. My Los kids, Angeles, My kids are I making guess. plans to go to the movies, and I'm like... Since the pandemic, that has never happened. You yeah. guys, we yeah. need to go see these movies, support these small businesses. Which one are you going I'm to, I'm all Bill? Team Oppenheimer. Oh, no. I figured, Bill. <laughs> you look like an Oppenheimer, more like yeah, a... I think between Barbie <laughs> and Oppenheimer, I'm very serious. I'm all in on Oppenheimer. You weren't yeah. like a Barbie person? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> all right, guys. He's going all to right. see Barbie. So we made really big is. thanks. Yeah, we, I'm watching the British We made show. plans for the weekend. <laughs> All right, thanks for watching The Hill on News Nation. Oh, and a special thanks to Johanna for joining Thank me today. Thank you. Yes. Fun Bob. to co-host nice with voyage. you. <laughs> okay, we had a great panel. And we're back Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Elizabeth Vargas' report starts in just a few moments. But before we go, The Hill remembers a crooner, the American songbook. Tony Bennett, the immortal, passing away at the age of 96. The singer took a part in an impromptu recording with Dave Brubeck, another jazz great, back in 1962. This was on the grounds of the Washington Monument after being invited to the White House by President Kennedy. Let's have a look and a listen. Have a great weekend. One smile that's near you. One face that lights when it's near you. One girl, you're everything. If you win it, comes and goes in a minute. Is the Pentagon hiding information on UFOs? 
Lawmakers are demanding answers from the military tonight on 